Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Mainline, where we seek to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus for Philadelphia's historic mainline and surrounding communities. Every week, we look again to the story of the Bible, the lavish grace of God revealed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website, libertymainline.org. invite you to find your seats as we continue in our worship service, but do encourage you after the service to enjoy each other's company some more as well. As we continue uh, our service, we are going to be looking at the next passage in the book of Judges. And before we read the passage, just wanted to give a quick reminder of the context uh, for what we're looking at, because we're uh, continuing in the middle of a particular section of the book. And the context is the suffering of God's people under the raids of powerful marauders who um, are plundering them repeatedly. And on the one hand, the storyline of the Bible uh, unfolds into the New Testament and our vision of the battlefield of the universe expands. And the battle of good and evil is not of one good group of people fighting against one bad group of people, but it is God's battle against the tentacles of evil that reach within each of us to rescue us from ourselves. In fact, in the book of Judges as a whole and the story of Gideon specifically, we actually see the struggle unfold. Old Testament Israel was supposed to be this new redeemed humanity, but instead of transforming into something better, we often see God's people devolve into the same broken human patterns. And that's something that we're actually going to be looking at in more detail in the next passage next Sunday when we look at the final act of Gideon's public career. But for today, we have the passage before us, so I invite you to listen along as we listen to the living word of the living God. All the Midianites, Amalekites, and people of the east gathered together, crossed over the Jordan, and camped, and the Abizrites rallied behind him. He sent messengers throughout all of Manasseh who rallied behind him. And he also sent messengers throughout Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali who also came to meet him. Then Gideon said to God, If you will deliver Israel by me as you said, I will put a wool fleece here on the threshing floor. If dew is only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, I will know that you will deliver Israel by me as you said. And that's what happened. When he got up early in the morning, he squeezed the fleece and wrung dew out of it, filling a bowl with water. Gideon then said to God, don't be angry with me. Let me speak one more time. Please allow me to make one more test with the fleece. Let it remain dry and the dew be all over the ground. That night God did as Gideon requested. Only the fleece was dry and dew was all over the ground. Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the troops who were with him got up early and camped beside the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them, below the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many troops for me to hand the Midianites over to them, or else Israel might elevate themselves over me and say, I saved myself. Now announce to the troops, whoever is fearful and trembling may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 of the troops turned back, but 10,000 remained. Then the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many troops. 
Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. If I say to you, this one can go with you, he can go. But if I say about anyone, this one cannot go with you, he cannot go. So he brought the troops down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Separate everyone who laps water with his tongue like a dog. Do the same with everyone who kneels to drink. The number of those who lapped with their hands to their mouths was 300 men, and all the rest of the troops knelt to drink water. The Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with the 300 men who lapped and hand the Midianites over to you, but everyone else is to go home. So Gideon sent all the Israelites to their tents, but kept the 300 troops who took the provisions and their ram's horns. The camp of Midian was below him in the valley. And that night the Lord said to him, get up and attack the camp, for I have handed it over to you. But if you are afraid to attack the camp, go down with Pura, your servant. Listen to what they say, and then you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outpost of the troops who were in the camp. Now the Midianites, Amalekites, and the people of the east had settled in the valley like a swarm of locusts, and their camels were as innumerable as the sand on the seashore. When Gideon arrived, there was a man telling his friend about a dream. He said, listen, I had a dream. A loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp, struck a tent, and it fell. The loaf turned the tent upside down so that it collapsed. His friend answered, This is nothing less than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has handed the entire Midianite camp over to him. When Gideon heard the account of the dream and its interpretation, he bowed in worship. He returned to Israel's camp and said, Get up, for the Lord has handed the Midianite camp over to you. And then he divided the 300 men into three companies and gave each of the men a ram's horn in one hand and an empty pitcher with a torch inside it in the other hand. Watch me, he said to them, and do what I do. When I come to the outpost of the camp, do as I do. When I and everyone with me blow our ram's horns, you are also to blow your ram's horns all around the camp. And then you will say, for the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon and the, three, and the hundred men who were with him went to the outpost of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch after the sentries had been stationed. They blew their ram's horns and broke the pitchers that were in their hands. The three companies blew their ram's horns and shattered their pitchers. They held their torches in their left hands and their ram's horns to blow in their rights, and they shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And each Israelite took his position around the camp, and the entire Midianite army began to run, and they cried out as they fled. When Gideon's men blew their 300 ram's horns, the, Trump, the Lord caused the men of the whole army to turn on each other with their swords. They fled to the Acacia house in the direction of Zerera, as far as the border of Abel-Meholah near Tabith. Then the men of Israel were called from Naphtali, Asher, and Manasseh, and they pursued the Midianites. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the whole country of Ephraim with this message. Come down to intercept the Midianites and take control of the, of the water courses ahead of them as far as Bethbara and Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out and they took control of the water courses as far as Bethbara and the Jordan. They captured Oreb and Zeb, the two princes of Midian, killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb and Zeb at the winepress of Zeb while they were pursuing the Midianites. They brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Over the past 30 years, American teenagers have become far more safety conscious. 
the share of 8th and 10th graders who reported that they like to take risks sometimes has dropped continuously from about 48% of students in 1991 to just 32% of students in 2021. Now, that might be a relief if you are a cautious, risk-averse parent like myself, but there's also a downside to risk avoidance. So one NYU business professor has taken to urging his students to take more risks, and that, or something he's noticed particularly with students, simply asking out someone they're interested in in a date. Because those activities have become, for some, increasingly intimidating because they raise the risk of failure, of rejection, so more and more young adults simply take less risky paths. But that's not just a Gen Z issue. Many of us limit our own choices because we just follow the safer options. We construct our own personal versions of Gideon who did his harvest chores cooped up inside to avoid the risk of detection by pillaging Midianites. Because really, that's a sensible solution, right? You just avoid conflict, except that when Gideon does that, and all the Israelites did that, it was simply allowing that um, ongoing oppression to happen again year after year after year. And often, we accommodate ourselves to bad situations because bigger changes are scary. But as the story of Gideon continues to unfold in our passage, God invites us out of fear and insecurity through a deeper confidence rooted in the sufficiency of God. And that's what we'll look at this morning, the source of our insecurity and the sufficiency of God. So, insecurity. When we first meet Gideon, we saw this last week, we have this amusing intro. God greets him, O valiant warrior, while he's hiding inside so people don't find him. And then when God tells Gideon to lead the fight against the marauders plundering his community, he protests. I'm the youngest in my family. My family is the weakest in my clan. I can't possibly do this. Based on what Gideon says about himself, we would think, oh, he's a nobody, scared and hiding. God has to assure him over and over and over. Last week, we saw that Gideon hosted this messenger, this angel of the Lord, who then confirmed his identity by miraculously flambaying the meal that God provided for him. And then we see here two different tests with a fleece and then a confidence-boosting vision on the very night of the battle. Now, a lot of people treat the story of Gideon's fleeces as a model to figure out God's will in certain situations. And just to clarify, these fleeces are not comfy, lightweight polyester jackets. Uh, Those are not yet uh, invented. This is wool shaved off of a sheep. So some people will do tests like this, laying out their fleeces, setting up little signs so that God can supposedly point them one way or the other when they have a big decision to make or sometimes very small decisions to make. But here's the thing in the passage which helps us see that that that's not actually a model that is being set up for us because in the passage we see that that Gideon actually knows what God wants him to do. The issue is not knowing what to do. Start of chapter 6, verse 14, 
Go in the strength you have and deliver Israel from the grasp of Midian. I am sending you. Gideon's fleeces are, are not about whether Gideon should do option A or option B. They are whether God will do what God promised. That's Gideon's question. So in verse 36, you hear it. If you will deliver Israel by my hand, as you said. Gideon's afraid that God won't follow through on his promises, that God won't keep his word. Gideon's problems are insecurity, fear, and doubt, especially in the, the faithfulness of God, the reliability of God. Things that many of us can identify with. In fact, probably more of us in the room than we might ourselves realize. Because when Gideon talks about himself, he talks about himself like he's a nobody, young, weak, powerless. But as the story unfolds, is that the way that anybody else sees Gideon? In this passage, the Spirit of the Lord uh, envelops or clothes or swallows Gideon. He blows the ram's horn, the call to war. Uh, Lord of the Rings fans, this is the uh, beacons of Gondor in this passage. Summons Israel to battle. And a lot of people respond. He gets 32,000 or 32 units of troops. That's a lot of people. And then when he sneaks into the camp, he listens to these Midianites who have heard about him and are afraid of him. He even devises this incredibly clever stratagem to confuse the Midianite camp with just 300 men. It doesn't say whose plan it was. It doesn't say explicitly that it's God's plan. It may have been Gideon's own creative strategy. So do you see the gap between how Gideon views himself and then how everyone else views him? Over the years, I've had the chance to know some incredibly talented people, people who move in incredibly successful circles, and yet being successful and accomplished does not remove insecurity. In fact, it can actually make it worse. I started noticing this when uh, my wife and I moved to Princeton. She was doing her PhD studies at the university there. And we met some incredibly intelligent academics. Some were well-established. Some were these rising star, up-and-coming academics. And living in Princeton, you meet business people, consultants, pharmaceutical company executives, literally rocket scientists. And Princeton is very much like New Jersey's mainline, but it's better here, obviously. Uh, but when you get to know people, you realized how incredibly insecure so many of these very talented, successful people will probably be hardworking. But eventually, if you do that, you disappointing realization that I'm not actually as extraordinary as I want to think that I am. What if other people around me discuss that experience tell us about ourselves? Gideon's insecurity, what does it tell us about ourselves? Ultimately, we cannot rest in a confidence that is rooted in ourself. You can never find a sense of identity and value that's lasting and resilient in ourselves. You can't even find a lasting source of identity and confidence in other people's opinions about you, even if that opinion is positive, because you can never know, what if I make a mistake? Will they still think I'm a good man, good woman? And we can only find confidence and security in some source outside of ourselves, not just the opinion of other people, and that's what God is trying to teach Gideon and us.
So these fleeces, these aren't about what should I do. They're about who is God. The mini-God, the mini-Lord who's competing for Israel's and Gideon's spiritual allegiance is the Lord Baal, a weather god, the god who makes rainfall and crops grow. In Canaanite mythology, Baal even had a daughter divinity do. So these two fleece tests are essentially posing the question, God of Israel, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God of Moses and the Exodus, are you the God of all? Are you really in control and can I trust you now? So God first makes the fleece not just moist, but abundantly, supernaturally moist, laden with water. And then God makes the fleece supernaturally dry while all the rest of the ground is moist. Gideon has a lot of doubt, a lot of fear. And what you notice in the passage is that God is incredibly patient with Gideon. When we have questions and fears, and doubts about who God is, who we are, he's incredibly patient with you. So one of the things I love about uh, liberty here is that you don't have to be certain about everything to be welcome, to be part of the community. You don't have to hide questions you have, or doubts, or fears. You, we don't have to pretend that everything makes sense to us all the time. In fact, that's usually a really unhelpful way to deal with the questions that we have and the doubts that we have. And we see in this passage that we do that because God's nature it himself is a nature that is long-suffering, patient, even with doubting, distrustful people like Gideon or like us. Will Gideon trust God to keep his promises? That's the next piece. Will Gideon come to rest in the sufficiency and power of God? Second point, he just has one problem. Gideon, you have too many troops. And Gideon says, wait a minute, what? Right? In military conflicts, it's almost a universal rule that more troops is more better, right? I mean, who would want to go into battle with a disadvantage? The problem, though, verse 2, God says, if you have too many troops, you might say, my own strength saved me. So, acting as commander-in-chief, much to Gideon's consternation, God orders two force reductions. The first is that anyone who's afraid is released to return home. And at some level, this could actually make sense and be kind of pragmatic, right? Because uh, if you're willing to say in front of all of your uh, fellow citizens, uh, fellow soldiers, that I'm afraid to fight and uh, you're willing to leave, it's very possible if you go into the battle, you might be afraid and flee, and that can cause uh, chaos and sap morale in the heat of battle. So it kind of makes sense, but two-thirds of the army that leaves, okay? Gideon probably was hoping it would be a smaller percentage than that. Uh, But God says, you still have too many. And so he sets up the second test, Now, there have been lots of sermons that have waxed poetic about how the drinking test says something about the character of the soldiers God wants to use. Actually, those sorts of sermons are actually making the very opposite point of what the passage is about, right? This is not about how good these 300 soldiers are like Zack Snyder's movie, right? I've even seen this passage cited in psychology textbooks as an ancient example of an intelligence test. That would be really cool if true, but alas, 
Uh, that's not actually uh, in the passage. God simply breaks these troops into two uh, groups, and then he just chooses the smaller group, which is a lot smaller. So we end up with 300 troops out of 32,000. God dismisses 99% of Gideon's army. Why? Because God thinks our biggest problem is not lack of resources. It's not that we, it's that we think we can do things ourselves, that we've got enough strength or smarts or influence to save ourselves. And we can see all the resources and all the skills and the the budgets lined up and the talents lined up. We are prone to forget God who is the source of all of it. And we are prone to say what God warns, my strength saved me. Uh, When God originally called Gideon, he says, I'm going to save, go in the strength that you have, which is an interesting turn of phrase, right? The emphasis is not that you are particularly strong, but go in the strength that you have. As British theologian Isabel Hamley writes, Yahweh is challenging the myth of independence and self-sufficiency among his people and those who watch them. Remember what Gideon asked before? Where are all the wonders that our ancestors told us about? And so God says, okay, let's set up a wonder for you to experience. And then he's probably thinking to himself, I think I'd rather just have the 32,000 troops. So that night, God again recognizes Gideon's fear and gives him one more encouragement. An undercover visit to the enemy camp, an overheard conversation of a dream, and an interpretation. And if it sounded like a strange vision and sounded like a total non-sequitur of an interpretation, that's because it kind of is. And yet, ironically, Gideon hears what he needs to hear to bolster his confidence that God will do what he said he will do. Gideon may be afraid of the Midianites, but they're actually even more afraid of him, probably not aware that 99% of the army has just left. So that night, Gideon's 300 men surround the enemy camp with uh, essentially a trumpet, a torch, and a bottle to smash. And at the change of the watch, they create enough noise for a much larger army. And probably what's happened is that the Midianites are using a three-watch cycle. So one watch has gone out to their, their stations. The retiring watch is coming back to their bunks. But all the noise wakes up the third watch who's asleep. And so as they wake up, they hear all of this commotion. And then they see armed men walking through their camp and think, this is the Israelites. We're under attack. And so the swords that they had used to plunder Israel, to steal from them over and over and over again, God actually turns on themselves and delivers his people. And it's deeply ironic because Gideon and his 300 men shout, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. But where's their sword? It's on their hips because their hands are full. They're holding their trumpet. They're holding their torch. None of them could be even holding their weapons because they win the battle without fighting at all because God fights for them. God keeps his word. Now, compared to Gideon, we actually know a lot more about God because we know not just the story of the Exodus, but we know the story of Jesus. 
In this passage, Gideon is clothed with the Spirit of the Lord, but the New Testament writers repeatedly urge followers of Jesus to put on Christ, to be clothed with Jesus. That, that is our reality. So that insecure and fearful, overwhelmed people like Gideon and you and me might find an identity and a confidence outside of ourselves, outside of other people, in Jesus. Because the promise of the gospel is that I unite you to Jesus and all of his good is yours and all of your bad he takes. And Jesus, uh, who unlike Gideon, didn't put God to the test. Remember how Satan tried to test Jesus to cause him to doubt? He asks, if you're the son of God, do this miracle. Force God to show up. Make the Father prove himself. But again and again, Jesus says, I have the Father's word and I trust him. I don't need to force him. When all of Jesus' disciples melted away like that 99% of Gideon's army, he trusted his Father. And even as he's hanging on the cross and onlookers are jeering him, saying, if you are who you said you are, come down from the cross. Save yourself now. He didn't do it because he was there for us. Because his crucifixion was how Jesus turned the swords of our ultimate enemies of sin and evil and death on themselves in order to rescue and save us, not by strength, but by weakness, to bring life out of death. And he invites us to follow him, to be clothed in him, to receive our identity and our confidence, not in who we are and not in what we do, but in who he is and what he's done. What was the first thing that the angel of the Lord said to Gideon? Before he says, O valiant warrior, he says, the Lord is with you. And the message of the gospel is the Lord has come. Jesus is God with us, God with you. Liberty Church, God is with you, friends, brother, sister, guest, God is with you. And what we cannot do, God can do. What we, we can do is point each other to Jesus, point our neighbors to Jesus, be the very presence of Jesus on the main line, which we are not because of ourselves, but because of him. Because the Lord keeps his promise, I am with you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank and praise you for this passage, this incredible uh, event in the history of God's people, and we thank you that we have so much more to look to, to see your heart for us, and we pray that you would help us to see that we can have an identity and a confidence and a security, not because of anything we do, and we can have identity and confidence and security that can't be taken away from us because of anything we fail to do, but because you unite us to Jesus. And we pray that you would use this time as we continue our worship to remind us that you are the God who is with us in Jesus. In his name, amen. Hey, thanks for listening. We hope that either through or in spite of the human messenger, you heard the gracious invitation of God to the abundant life of love and service 
found in the transforming person and work of Jesus. If you've been encouraged by this podcast, please take a moment to rate, review, or subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about our church, check us out at libertymainline.org.